This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. We give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Welcome to Practical for Your Practice. I am Jenna Ermold, and as always, I'm joined by my fantastic colleagues, Dr. Kevin Holloway and Dr. Andy Santinello. Hey, everybody. Hey, everyone. And today we are really thrilled to have uh, a fantastic speaker who participated in our webinar series, Dr. Anna Brewer to talk about the synergy between MI, uh, motivational interviewing, and uh, EBPs. So welcome, Anna. It's great to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. And maybe we'll just start with a brief uh, sort of introduction of yourself and what got you interested in MI. That would be great to start out with. Sure. So I'm a human services psychologist by training. My specialties are in clinical psychology and behavioral medicine. And I was fortunate to be mentored by uh, Carlo Di Clemente, who introduced me to motivational interviewing, oh, back in 2006. And it was, I I think it was an opportunity to shift what I thought I was going to be learning about how to be a psychologist, how to really get in there and um, be an expert and, and get people to change their behavior and really was a gift to completely shift that expectation. And I just really fell in love with it, started training others and healthcare professionals through our research projects in the Baltimore City community. And that was about 2009. And then brought it into my work in the VA healthcare system with veterans specializing in addictions and trauma. And now I'm in private practice and just enjoy bringing it into my work and sharing it with others and training as a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers International Group. That's what I do. Fantastic. Um, and I think you crossed over with our own Dr. Andy Santanello at the Baltimore VA, correct? I did. He was one of my supervisors. Was it on my internship or postdoc? I think it was, well, actually, I think we first met when you were an extern. And I think I was a postdoc at that time. And then you were an intern and then a postdoc with us. And I, I really just pretended to supervise you because you already came with so many skills <laughs> and uh, abilities. But yeah, we um, we worked together in a bunch of different ways at the VA. Yeah, I learned a lot from Dr. Santinello about EBPs, uh, prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, and, um, and, and also mindfulness-based interventions. Cool. Well, great. Good, good to get you two back to get the band back together again, yeah. if you will. So, Anna, we thought we'd start just, you know, again, to orient the listeners, just briefly touch on what is MI? I know that's a loaded question given, you know, it's a short answer um, that we're looking for. Um, how is it maybe a little bit different than an EBP protocol? Um, before we move into how do we sort of weave MI into some of the work that we do when we do EBPs? Sure. The definition of motivational interviewing has um, many various forms, and I appreciate the developers, Bill Miller and, and Steve Rolnick, for 
for offering a few different types of definitions, a technical definition, a layperson definition, a clinical definition. And I think at its at its core, it's a style of conversation between people that's about uh, collaboration and it's person-centered and it is goal-oriented. So sometimes there's the thinking that maybe it's um, really completely about just listening well and, and doing good reflective listening and connecting uh, from the humanistic sort of background where it's partly rooted. Um, but it really adds to that the emphasis on behavior change and evoking from the individual their own reasons for change in an atmosphere of acceptance and compassion. And there's no manual for it. That's one major difference from some of the EVPs that, that many of us have been trained in that, that do offer kind of step-by-step procedurally based approach to recovery or treatment. And MI isn't, um, there are forms where there's kind of guidelines for it. Sort of motivational enhancement therapy is, is a, an effort to package some of what MI is. Um, but it's still really rooted in the person who walks through the door and what they, what they need and, and really listening well to that and, and having an ear for what we call change talk skills to do that. I think that is sometimes where certainly early on in my career, I remember thinking I was doing, you know, motivational interviewing when I was asking those couple of questions of how important is it to you and what would it take to change? I think we kind of learn these, these couple key things, but it's certainly more complex than that. Um, so we'll, we'll mm-hmm. definitely appreciate having this conversation about best strategies to, you know, places in EBPs, you, you tend to look for opportunities, but I will, uh, I will let Andy and Kevin ask their questions. I know they have some good questions too. One of the things that really struck me from your definition of MI is something that I, I think is simultaneously probably a, a, a benefit of MI, but also something that might make it harder to learn, which is that there's no, no protocol for it. You know, there's no way to kind of read the protocol and know if you're doing it right. Mm-hmm. And like you said, developing that ear for change talk is, is sort of one of those very exact, but also very fuzzy, you know, mm-hmm. kind of skills to work on. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess one of the questions that I, I'm curious about is when you're, you, when you're training clinicians to get better, to develop that ear for change talk, you know, are there things that um, you found to be helpful challenges that come up a lot that um, you found, you know, to, to make it difficult for people to develop that ear? Because I imagine it must be, must be pretty, pretty challenging to be in that role and help people to develop that, that skill. Um, I, I think what's, some of what I start with in training is asking people to think about what they care about in their own life. And that's, it, it's often a really strange start to, to training to, to like, this is, we're going to just start out with not our expertise or who we are, or what role we're in or what you're trying to help people with. Um, but sharing with another person in the room, something that you care about and in your life, something that brings you joy or something that you value. And then listening for when another person shares, um, just with curiosity about that person and how, and then I can give them, uh, two guidelines or rules, if you will, at the opening of most of my trainings that, um, when you're listening to this other person share about something they care about or something that brings them joy, um, show that you're listening and curious without talking about yourself. 
and without asking more than two questions. So you're limited. I can limit folks to two questions and then, and I don't give them, here's how you keep the conversation going or share, show curiosity or, or show that you're listening because we, we, as humans, I think a lot of us have that innately in us. What, what are other ways aside from saying, oh, I, I'm right there with you. I understand. I feel the same way and talking about oneself or going into um, question, 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 tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. And that people can pretty naturally just respond with either a, um, a, a response that's really rooted in like your affirmation of the person. If that is so cool that you do that, um, that it's, it's you know, some sort of kind of um, being moved by that person's experience or just with reflection, with an, just acknowledgement of what they said, like, oh, so you, you're telling me about your family and, and you like spending time together. That's what it's so important to you that you do that. And through that, what you're actually finding is potentially areas of their life that they are wanting more of, that they care about where their desires are, what their reasons are for um, any potential change they might want to make. So we really don't start in MI with what is the change talk we need to get, but really engaging that person and what their life is all about. And that's where I start my trainings. And it's, it's a training. It's very different for many folks to just start with that's in you to do and to listen for. Well, and, and in a very fundamental way, it's sort of reorienting people to their humanness and their innate, you know, need for connection. Mm-hmm. which is a really strange way to start a training in uh, an evidence-based therapy where we're the, I mean, most of us come to those ideas, uh, strange in a good way, um, mm-hmm. come to those trainings with the idea that we're going to become even more expert and layer on special knowledge and techniques. And so I love that starting place. And that's actually the ending place kind of for MI in a way. I mean, you're, you're having conversations in a way that um, there's a goal to it, but it, it really is, you know, sticking with that foundation of connecting and listening and reflecting and limiting yourself. And mm-hmm. so I think that's a really great way of starting with it and uh, helping clinicians connect with this part of themselves that they're already bringing into the room that we maybe forget about. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's many other approaches that, that sort of talk about this spirit, you know, the, the spirit of MI, like you don't hear that in other types of interventions. And maybe that's a little bit which, what you're getting at in that beginning exercise is really helping people to shift to thinking through, um, do I align with that spirit? Because I think you made that point in the webinar, you know, can I, can I get behind sort of the humanity piece and connect with that? Um, so maybe maybe if you could just share a couple words about how you help people understand that spirit too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, and it's another one where I start with what they already know and what their experience in life has been. And so, um, this is, as an exercise that comes from, um, my colleagues at the mint network, um, where we ask folks to think about a, um, their favorite teacher in their life or a mentor or someone who inspired them. You can also ask them to think about a time when they were going through something difficult and without sharing what that difficult time was um, or even who that teacher was, how did a person who helped them through that difficult time or a teacher who inspired them treat them? What did that person do that, that either helped you or inspired you or moved you? How, and then how did it impact you? How, how did it make you feel? 
what did it um, leave you with? And there's just a common core set of responses that we get to either of those questions um, typically. And it's, if you might be thinking of someone like that in your life right now, I'm looking at one of those people. This is kind of strange in that way that, that Dr. Santanello is here. One of those mentors who, who really had a powerful impact. And the responses are almost always that person treated me with, with um, respect. They treated me um, with, they gave me support. They listened really well. And they didn't jump to solutions or to try to change me. They just gave me space and they gave, and then it left me with hope. It left me with more confidence in myself and it left me finding what I wanted to do or change to help me through that time or to the next step, what I wanted to do with my life. Not bad from a guy from New Jersey, huh? <laughs> <laughs> hey, great people come out of New Jersey. You know, that's where I was born too. So <laughs> that's right. I totally forgot about that. I, well, and I, I you know, that the, the spirit of MI like, around these sort of process based, empirically based processes. And we talk, we've been talking a lot about those on the podcast and how, uh, you know, really master clinicians can tap into these processes and tailor them to what's happening in the room. It's, it's sort of interesting to be talking about things like spirit, the spirit of in your intentions as a therapist, because it seems very non-sciencey. And it's a it's an interesting thing to talk about these sort of non-sciencey values, intentions, spirit, in the context of talking about an empirically based psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess one question I have around that is how do you reconcile those two things? Because I know science is also something you are incredibly passionate about. Thanks. Um, do you have uh, do we have an hour to to go into? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can do like a part one through ninety eight. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that's, that is, um, you know, and thinking back to, to Jenna's question too, this, the, the word spirit is it's, it doesn't come from, you know, an empirical that's been around much longer, this idea of a spirit that you carry embody or move through the world with, um, doesn't, yeah, doesn't sound very empirically based. So how do we understand that from, from that? perspective um and i will tell you that they wanted us to take the word spirit out of your of the proposal we had used for ces and i was like no the word spirit stays in because it's part of mi but it was like it triggered this like we can't that that that's not good enough for a learning objective to have the word spirit in it so anyway keep going but that was a funny like concrete example yeah thanks for defending that um because if you lose that and this is what i love about the science of of uh mi research is that there's been some really excellent research on what's happening in the room and what when people listen to interactions and we have integrity coding tools. So um, Terry Moyers, Denise Ernst, uh, psychologists who've developed objective measures to listen to interactions and code the clinician for the core technical skills of MI, as well as uh, rate them on the qualities of the spirit of MI, including um, the aspects of acceptance, like empathy, including partnership, which was core to the spirit, um, including the evocation aspect of um, are we, is this, did, did that response aim to cultivate change talk and to maybe soften sustained talk? So there really are. Um, then we have a scale of one to five, which as the science nerd that I am, I love that just turning our, not just the client's behavior into objective 
you know, objective, measurable outcomes, but also what we're doing as clinicians in the room, each utterance that we make in response to the client. And that in counting coding and counting interaction after interaction, it seems to be the case that the clinicians who embody both the relational components um, at higher levels and also you can count their technical skills, how many open questions they ask you know, the um, quality of their reflective listening, that those predict more change talk from the client. And then we're trying to get more and more studies on does that, how does that predict behavior change? And it seems to over time. So um, I speak to that a bit in training. Yeah. Not at the beginning. I don't feel like it's my job to convince or persuade because that would be me not embodying the spirit of a mind. I love that. Cause I, you know, I, when I think about Kind of when I've attended, uh, you know, MI workshops and things like that, it, it has felt very experiential, very much reaching into, you know, kind of our own experience. And I think it's interesting because I approached it with this idea that I was going to go and and learn kind of like here's that list of skills that you're gonna gonna do, and and here's how you put things in any particular order to you know to to reach a particular outcome. And and as you were talking about you know the spirit of it and and how sometimes we're this 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 style of interacting um, might feel a little unnatural at first. It, it is interesting because I had this conflict in my head of like, why isn't that natural? That That's who we are at our core. And yet at the same time, I really did feel that when I went to this workshop of feeling like, oh, this is, I have to step out and do something awkward and different. And, you know, mm-hmm. so, and I wonder if a lot of people who are, you know, just being introduced to MI have a similar reaction or if I'm just weird, but <laughs> You're definitely weird, but it's a good question. <laughs> okay, granted that. Well, I, I haven't done my performance <laughs> appraisal yet, so I can't confirm or deny if. <laughs> well, but, but it is weird because we are so, I think especially in terms of our clinical training, it, the emphasis is so much on becoming the expert. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of take for granted the uh, the nonspecific factors and just being another human in the room with a human being. So I think there is something very... It's it's ironic. It's actually very um, different and strange, and feels awkward maybe to be in that role mm-hmm. of human to human and act in that way when we're in this professional role. So it's the normal actually seems abnormal, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with that, you know, again, when Anna, when you were talking about kind of perhaps our natural inclination is to go into question, question, question mode rather than being there and listening and and being present. Um, I, I, and, and I'm again, thinking of kind of my own experience, I, I think there are times when, when I'm working with a client that I almost feel this demand that as the expert, I should ask questions and that I, you know, I need to get in there and dig and I need to reveal some brilliant thing that they've never thought of before. And I, and I love that that is so different mm-hmm. in this approach that it really is about being with that person and having a human experience. Yeah. And that, that, that is therapeutic, but yeah, yeah, that seems to relate to both the um, engagement in the relationship in whatever then, and then also follow through with whatever we might recommend when it, when we do move into kind of focusing on, on what, what they want to see change and then planning that together, but through evoking from them, why it matters to them and better yeah. understanding, you know? As I, as I think about my own experience too, I, I've I've talked to other clinicians who I guess conceptualize MI as a way to help convince a person to make the kind of changes they need to make. 
And I wonder if you could speak to that. Yeah. I mean, it, it came up just this week in a training was, you know, I'm, I'm here to learn how to motivate people. Um, and that comes from, you know, our very well-intentioned desire to, to help. And that's what we get into this field for. We want to um, fix problems in the world and we want to help others be free from suffering. And it comes from a place of compassion. And that is an, another element of the core spirit of MI is that intention to alleviate suffering. And then also that we call it the writing reflex because it's such a knee-jerk reaction. When we see others suffering, we sometimes experience empathic distress. And so our efforts to alleviate that suffering may be from really a place of us wanting to get rid of the suffering that we experience in the room and fix it. And if I can tell you how to fix it, then I'll feel better. And I'll know when you leave the room, if I've said it and I've told you everything you need, I think you need to hear from my expert opinion. I've done a great job. And it doesn't necessarily predict change that well in all, you know, in, across interactions. Um, and so I hear, when I hear that urge to convince or, or fix, um, it's the clinician, I think in that moment who's, who's suffering with that urge. And that often for me has become my cue when I feel like I'm starting to want to push or um, can't really tolerate the, the, the distress in that room. I, um, this is where MI invites me to sit back and listen better and, and communicate compassion for the suffering that's happening right now and go back into, you know, um, reflective listening that's just about what they're experiencing in that moment. That was going to be one of my questions was sort of common pitfalls you see, um, misunderstandings, misinterpretations, and Kevin kind of just, just got at that a little bit, but then like common pitfalls that you see as providers try to weave this into EBPs. And even the concept of being able to weave it in, like, I, 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 I think we've all encountered clinicians who you know, are coming to an EBP training because they want to learn the steps of things to do and say to make someone better. Yeah. And, and almost the, from some approaches, it might feel like these are kind of incompatible approaches too. So I wonder if you could mm -hmm. speak to both, both of those as you're answering that, that Jenna's question there. Yeah. So um, the weaving it in, it seemed like that was the theme of both questions. <laughs> if I had that right. Um, the, the, I like where, where Bill and Steve are going with, um, call them Bill and Steve at this point, I'm happy to be, have conversations with them every couple of months. So it is nice to, um, to feel comfortable calling them by their first name. So the, um, thinking is really, am I, is being a style and being a skill set that we can shift into when we hear ambivalence about a particular behavior change or when we are just starting to get to know a person and starting with engaging and then focusing on what what is it that they want to see change um the so that it doesn't make as much sense to them to think of it as a separate intervention as much as something that can be synergistic with a variety of approaches um that whether that be an EBP in mental health or a um, primary care setting, um, or I've recently did a training with oral health providers and, and dental hygienists that are talking with their um, patients about flossing or about um, fluoride, you know, supplements and and this listening. What what are your concerns in this? And now vaccine hesitancy. Those are so many different applications. 
um, where when our, you know, our writing reflexes, we call it that urge to jump in and say, well, you should, and here's what needs to happen. Um, if we can resist that and come back to, it's just two people talking. Um, and that, that to me is, can be blended with almost any intervention that we're doing, because when is it not two people talking or even in a group setting? Um, so to me, that's the, the space in which if we can, we can choose to shift into it. Now there may be times when it doesn't fit. Um, and it may be even whether it's the clinician style, um, or there's, as Jenna was speaking to that, um, not really kind of believing in some of the, um, motivations behind the spirit of MI. So absolute worth of humans and, um, that we, we all have the capacity to change all of those pieces, um, then it might not fit. Or if the inner, if the, um, if there is an ambivalence, it doesn't fit. If someone's ready to change and they're doing their treatment and if they can tell you, you know, I, I know, um, what, why I want to do this and let's plan and go forth, then you might not need it. Um, and, uh, also I think if there's a lack of uh, clarity on the client's part on a lack of, um, uh, maybe re- reality engagement. So psychosis actively in that room, not to say it doesn't apply in serious mental illness, but um, if they're, they're having difficulty with insight into uh, what or, or whom they want their life to be about, um, that, that might be a difficult application as well. And it doesn't always fit for parents when our job, this is something Terry Moyers likes to come back to when, <laughs> when our job is to um, keep people alive, um, you know, or in emergency settings, when it's time to get really directive, like here are the emergency exits go. Um, <laughs> that's probably not the time to ask, why might you want to um, survive this situation? <laughs> so, <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anna, you mentioned Mint at the beginning. And mm-hmm. if you wanted to say anything about who they are, what, what, what the organization is to it. Cause I wonder, I mean, and maybe this can be part of the actual actionable Intel discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder if there are people who are listening, who might be interested in, in being involved more mm-hmm. in, in mint and, and have never heard of them before. Sure. So um, the mint organization is um, it's, it's membership based. It's a, an international nonprofit uh, of motivational interviewing trainers um, the, I joined it in 2017. I had learned from many members of Mint. It was, um, I believe co-founded by Bill Miller, I believe. Um, and it's a space to, the values of the organization are really just, um, quality of MI training and, um, sharing our resources with each other as trainers. Um, it's, it's like any professional organization in that we all decide to join as we want to, um, there, we also have a lot of collaboration and discussion about the, the state of the, of the intervention and, um, and where quality training is being offered and by whom. Um, and so I think it's been a nice space to, um, to learn more about how to bring the spirit of MI into my trainings, how to, um, to think empirically about training outcomes, how much training do people need? And, um, and then to become a trainer, if someone's interested in this is, this is one of the the leading organizations in um, supporting that. So um, there, I'm not, I'm not a paid employee of theirs. So (laughs) um, the, 
organization has uh, annual conferences, forums, things like that, where we get together and share ideas and then um, e-forums as well, where we can uh, send messages and, and offer resources to each other. Um, so I think it's motivationalinterviewing.org. You can check that out. It's also a place to find trainers if you're looking for more training, um, whether it's virtual or for an organization as well. And so we always like to end with a couple of pieces of actionable intel, just really brief tips that our listeners can use. And in this case, use to, you know, maybe learn more about MI or if they're already, you know, started down that pathway, how they can uh, broaden and increase their expertise and training. So do you have a couple of thoughts about how our, our, uh, our clinicians who are listening can deepen their understanding of MI? Oh yeah. I had, um, I, this was the only thing I had prepared for in advance and I, what I prepared were tips for in the room. Um, and so those are good well, too. So, <laughs> so I had a much better idea. Mm-hmm. How might you prepare for using MI in the room mm-hmm. and a couple of practical tips? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for modifying. Forget about phone. training. That was a terrible question. <laughs> um, well, the, the training pieces, it is really simply, um, you know, looking you, look into the organization and, and, um, and contact me and others. If you you can talk more about it, you know, books go really far. Um, and, and then it's all about practice in the room. Um, so what, what I'll say is, you know, the, the, the science of training and how much, how many hours and all, what it takes to become, there's no certification in MI that the mint offers, um, right now. Um, and, and, and I think that is going back to some of, you know, it's shaped by our clients, I think, in many ways, and the practice of it, and um, and so bringing it into the room and being willing to submit tapes and have them coded for that fidelity I was speaking about. Um, that's something I really love doing. So, a couple of tips in the room that I think are helpful, especially if we're maybe in the middle of or at the beginning of another intervention, or meeting a client for the first time, or we're finding feeling stuck in the process of another EVP. Um, and maybe they're not uh, doing homework or engaging or they're feeling ambivalent about whatever it is that you're talking through. I think the first piece is to practice self-compassion, that that really helps us embody the compassion piece and that when we're feeling frustrated or stuck, um, it may be a, a time to, to sit back and be mindful and to help um, unclutter our own minds so that we can listen better. Um, and then whatever ways you do that, whatever way that you practice self-compassion in that moment. And then I think another piece is listening more than we're speaking and um, how to do that. How do we know we're doing that? Like a rule of thumb in MI is for every question that you ask, offer at least two reflections. And if you don't know the difference between a question and reflection, please engage in MI training. Yeah, for sure. Um, And um, the... Then the other piece, I think the third piece is that if we are, what I do is ask permission a lot more than I might've done before. Um, might even ad, ad nauseum, it might sound like I do it almost every time I'm about to um, offer, I wanna offer information or um, guidance or direction, or um, even when I wanna make an observation, I'll ask permission, can, can I share with you? Is it okay to be helpful if I share with you about something that um, I'm noticing or, something that's helpful for other clients that I've worked with. And just that ask, that sharing power, that that question of permission really helps. And people rarely say no. Those would be my three tips. Those are great. Self-compassion, 
in whatever way that you do that normally in those moments as a clinician when it gets tough, really focusing on listening. And I love your rule of thumb there, two reflective statements for every question. That's mm -hmm. great. And, um, you, you know, I already forget the third one. <laughs> and, I, and I'm only saying that because I want to model self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to forget some things sometimes. <laughs> yeah, we don't, our reflections don't have to be everything someone just said. It can be parts that stand out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Asking permission. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is, I think, really important too. And especially when, you know, I can think of all sorts of applications for asking permission when it comes to doing cognitive therapy or, um, you know, you're, you're going to potentially ask a controversial question. Um, but yeah, just leveling the playing field sounds great. Those are fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you again for, um, we just can't get enough of you, Anna. So we'll figure out some other things to talk about for now. Um, definitely, if you're interested in, in hearing a little more, check out the CDP Presents webinar that Dr. Brewer did that was fantastic and really well received. We'll make sure the link to that is in the show notes. Um, there was also a really lovely handout that you um, shared with us that, that we'll be able to post as well that kind of goes over some of the basic tenets of MI and some of the practical techniques, things like that. So we um, can include that as well as, um, you know, feel free to follow up and, and check out Mint and those things. So thank you again. Thank you for the work you're doing in the field. Thanks for taking time to chat with us today. It was thank a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, good to see you again. Me too. And I think it's time to call Andy, Andy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. And we hope you join us again um, sometime soon. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Thanks, everyone. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Practical for Your Practice. Please feel free to subscribe, rate, and join in on the conversation in the comments. Until next time.